This message, I called this, Is This Heaven? We're continuing our series on Revelation. And the answer to that question, at least for some of you, you'll understand this, the answer to the question, Is This Heaven? is, no, it's Iowa. So, right? Do you know that reference? I mean, did you get that? No? Yeah? You didn't know? Come on, how do you know what that, okay, there's the baseball fans right there. Field of Dreams, it's Kevin Costner and Ray Liotta. <laughs> Remember? Yeah. Okay. Shoeless Joe Jackson says, is this heaven? And Ray says, no, it's Iowa. <laughs> well, you'll have to go home and watch Field of Dreams sometime. So. It's baseball, Ray. It's baseball. Anyway, so what is heaven? We use the word to kind of talk about uh, the sky above us, that that's, that's heaven. It's coming down from the heavens or whatever. We also use it to refer to the biblical place of God's realm and reign. It's a heavenly home that we're that we're planning to go to when we die. We have all kinds of thoughts about and ideas about heaven. Uh, we sing songs, of just, you know, I've got a mansion over the hilltop. Iris Sandfield wrote that great song. We talk about streets of gold that the Bible uh, tells us about. And uh, we talk about, you know, I hear people talk about golf courses and fishing holes and whatever stocked with fish because that's how we picture our loved ones that have gone on well i can just see them well, i bet daddy's up there doing this and i bet he's you know he's playing golf today and i bet they're riding horses or whatever well i don't know what all they're doing and and uh anyway but that's kind of our idea we get this idea of what heaven is it's a big you know whatever uh so you can fill in the blank there but what does john tell us about heaven in the revelation and keep in mind that we've been all these weeks, we've been looking at Revelation from the pastoral perspective of John. So we've kind of been asking ourselves, what, what's John saying to his congregation, to those churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey? And, and, and what is the Holy Spirit uh, and John saying to us today? So let's look at the vision here a bit. This is Revelation 21, beginning at verse 9. John writes, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now remember, we've got, we've got Babylon, which was a woman, a prostitute, and we've got Babylon also represented as a city, a horrible, wicked city. Now we've got the bride represented as the bride and also as a city coming down from God, a holy city, not a, a corrupt, wicked city. So this is Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them, on the foundations, were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is, the, is its lamp. 
So John sees a city come down out of heaven, and from the description, we're, we're kind of using both words there. It comes down out of heaven, out of the sky, right? And it is heaven by its description. The city is heaven. A new Jerusalem, he calls it. So we're thinking, well, you mean heaven's a city? I thought, shouldn't it be a garden? Because we started out in a garden, in the Garden of Eden, and now we're going to end up in a garden. Wouldn't that be more poetic or whatever? Well, the image we get in chapter 22 of Revelation of a river with orchards planted on each side of it kind of gives us the picture of a garden more than, than just a city, and certainly more than the city of Jerusalem. So when you think of a garden, uh, nowadays we think, oh, a vegetable garden. Well, don't think of that. Think of Garden of Eden. Think of a Park. Think of a lovely resort with beautiful grounds. That's where we go when we want to stroll and think and meditate and rest and relax. Cities are noisy, crowded, dirty, unrelenting. You want to escape the city. I got to get out of this city. I need to get out in the country. I need to get out to a beautiful garden, a park somewhere where I can relax and rest. But John sees heaven as a city, but notice he calls it a holy city, the holy city. So it's a city that's been made holy. It's been redeemed and sanctified and set apart to God. And it's not just any city. It's a particular city, Jerusalem, a city with a history and a somewhat checkered past at that. Eugene Peterson writes, the city of Jerusalem, a cramped thousand-year-old city quite without splendor. And don't be offended because I know we all love Jerusalem, but think about it. True, there'd been moments of great worship, great preaching, great temple building, and great revelation here. But this was the city that David captured from the pagan Jebusites, and then David dishonored it with adultery and murder. This was the city that became infamous for its child sacrifices and unlawful sorceries. This was the city that mocked the saintly integrity of Jeremiah and turned a deaf ear to the powerful preaching of Isaiah. This was the city twice destroyed in judgment, first by the God-directed armies of Babylon, and later by the Christ-prophesied Roman soldiers under Titus. And between the destructions, only shabbily rebuilt by Nehemiah. When Jesus came to the city, he wept. In Luke 19, he said, Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. And in Matthew, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who were sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate." And Peterson says, isn't this the most unlikely of cities to serve as a model for heaven? Yet here it is. But all of Jerusalem's history and all those wicked moments and all the stuff of the past, it also shows us something else that is very important, and that is that God does not give up on the city or on us. He doesn't give up on his bride. That bride, Jerusalem, the city, he's not given up on her, even when the city has sinned. And even when his bride, us, his church, has been unfaithful, he doesn't give up on us. But instead, for the bride and for the city, he cleanses and forgives and restores and rebuilds and makes new and makes her once again, in spite of all the past, a virgin bride, prepared and dressed beautifully as a bride for her husband. And Peterson adds, heaven is a holy city living in harmony with God. Heaven is a virgin bride alive in intimacy with God, and the city and the bride are us. Eugene Peterson, he's the guy that wrote the, the message 
paraphrase or translation of the Bible. It's actually a, a translation, but he wrote that. So some of you have read the message and, and uh, some of his other books are uh, interesting, some a little harder to read. But he wrote one on Revelation. He's written a couple of books that deal with Revelation, one called Reverse Thunder. And he comments on John's description of heaven, this heavenly city. And he, he comments about three visually striking things about the city. And uh, uh, he talked about well, it doesn't matter what he talked about. Anyway, I'll tell you the way I translated it. Heaven is perfectly proportioned. It's light-filled, and it's life-producing. So let me comment about these three things. So first of all, heaven is perfectly proportioned. So what does that say to us? Well, Peterson says we're being fashioned into holiness, right? Uh, Paul says that we're being built into this building, a tabernacle, a temple to the Lord that's holy. And so we're being fashioned into holiness. And then he, he says holiness is perfectly proportioned wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, holiness and wholeness. And wholeness and holiness and completeness are represented in the perfectly proportioned symmetry of heaven. In other words, everything about the, of heaven itself is whole and complete and, and, and uh, nothing's out of place there at all fits. It's made, it's made whole and complete by his presence. Remember, uh, the, the writer says also that we're seeking for a city whose foundations, whose builder and maker is God, eternal in the heavens, not made with human hands. And so regardless of how good a carpenter you are, something may be out of sync or out of symmetry somehow or another, but not in heaven. Everything is whole and holy and perfectly proportioned. Everything about heaven is right. And the vision shown to John included measurements that remind us of the tabernacle in the wilderness. We're talking about it in, our, in Sunday school class. And so it reminds us of the tabernacle and the instructions that were given to Moses. So Moses on top of Mount Sinai, and God says, you're going to build a, a tabernacle for me. It's going to be portable. And so you can break it down and move it in the wilderness and then set it up again and camp there and be able to worship and offer sacrifice uh, to the Lord. And so he's given very precise instructions about how to build uh, everything. And uh, uh, when you read the Old Testament scripture, it's always, <laughs> it's like, do they have to, did he have to say it that way? So you're going to build unto me a tabernacle to be 45 foot wide and 15 foot wide, or 45 foot long and 15 foot wide and 15 foot high, and it'll have this and this and this. And the, then the next verse says, and so Moses did as he was instructed. He built a tabernacle. It's 45 foot long. You just said that. But anyway, I'm always kind of pushing for the condensed version, and God doesn't do that. He doesn't get in a hurry. And it's to make sure it's kind of what parents do. Now, repeat it back to me. What did I tell you to do? You said, no, just tell me. I want to make sure you got this. So God made sure we understood it. And so Moses has these instructions here, 45 foot long, 15 foot wide, 15 foot high, and the Holy of Holies, this sacred room where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, where the glory of God and his mercy was manifested above the mercy seat there on the Ark, that was a perfect cube. 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet, high, wide, and long. And now John sees an angel measure this new city, New Jerusalem, and finds it also to be a cube like the Holy of Holies. 
Understand, we just read it. Heaven itself is a holy sanctuary where the, where the glory of God dwells. There's no temple there. There's no tabernacle there. There doesn't need to be one because the angel told John because God himself and Jesus, they're the temple, they're the tabernacle. They, they're the glory of God. We don't have to seek some representation of it. This is who God is. And so heaven itself is this holy sanctuary where all the glory of God dwells. And instead of this, holy sanctuary, this holy of holies, being 15 feet cubed like the tabernacle holy of holies. Heaven is 1,500 miles cubed, 1,500 miles high and 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles long. So rather than 3,375 cubic feet, that's what it is. I actually called, I called Larry Edwards yesterday. I kept trying to, I, I thought, I think that's right. That's how you find the cubic feet of something, you multiply the height by the width by the height, right? Uh, my bu- uh, Bill Satterfield, a friend of, of uh, the Grindstaffs, just had surgery the other day, and I, I'd called him to pray for him, and, and he was my algebra teacher in high school, and he laughed. He said, yeah, he said, I tell people, I tell people, I taught Phil Taylor all the algebra he knows. <laughs> I said, Bill, you're exactly right. <laughs> I didn't know much then. I've forgotten it all now. So I called, I called Larry. I said, isn't that right? Isn't that the way you multiply this? Because the, the figures in, in, uh, in Peterson's book weren't right. They didn't look right. So instead of 3,375 cubic feet, heaven, this holy sanctuary of heaven, is 3,375,000,000 cubic miles right? Zach, thank you. I've got an engineer agreeing, so I know I, know I got it right. 3,375,000,000 uh, cubic miles. Now, so remember, it's a picture of holiness and wholeness. And Peterson writes, the intended effect of these numbers on the imagination, though, is not to stagger us with size, but to give us a feel for the enormous wholeness, the vast holiness that reduces every desecration and blasphemy around us to puniness. Nothing is awkward. Balance, harmony, proportion prevail. Everything fits. Nothing is out of place. That's heaven. When we read on in chapter 21, so no immoral person's going to be there. No other thought, nothing unclean, nothing unholy, nothing dehumanizing, nothing that threatens us. None of that will be there. And 3,375,000,000 cubic miles of God's glory and holiness and wholeness. And that's what he's prepared for us. That's why Paul can say, eye has not seen and ear has not heard and it hadn't even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for his people. Wow, hallelujah. That's heaven. Well, the second feature we see is that heaven is light-filled. So creation begins in darkness and there's chaos and the Spirit of God broods over it and God says, let there be light. And the sun and moon were created to give light to the world. And while they continue to give physical light to this world, men and women have lost their way as sin has blinded them and spiritual darkness has come in the world. People run from the light. They want to hide because their deeds are evil. And John says concerning Jesus in his gospel, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. 
and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. The true light is Jesus who comes into the world. Jesus came as the light of the world, giving light to every person who would turn to him and turn away from the darkness. So in John's gospel, we get that word. In Revelation chapter 1, John has, as the beginning of this vision, he sees Jesus in his glory. And John says, and his face was shining like the sun in its brilliance. And now at the end of Revelation, in that new city where God's glory is unlimited and unrestricted, John says, the city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Heaven is filled with the presence and glory and the brilliance and the light of God. Listen to what I'm telling you. That means heaven means no more darkness, no more despair, no more darkened thoughts, no more suicidal thoughts, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more fear, no more mental illness, no more paranoia, no more sorrow or despair, no more sin, no more temptation, no more tempter, no more overwhelming waves of grief or burdens to bear. Heaven is filled with light and with God's glory. That's what he prepares for his people, hallelujah. And then the third thing, heaven is life-producing. Life there is abundant. And John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I'm not sure if, if each tree bears the same fruit and or it's like oh we're getting oranges this month and then next month the same tree bears apples or pears or whatever i don't know skip the pear month but i'm ready for apples and oranges but or if it's that they're bearing all different kind of fruit the point is and again you can't bog down in details in in revelation so what's the message a river of life and fruit to nourish and leaves to heal nothing is wasted it's like oh well let's pick the fruit yeah but take some leaves with you because th there's healing there leaves to heal everything is life producing everything about heaven is life giving everything about heaven is life sustaining in John's gospel, Jesus said that the devil had come to kill and steal and to destroy, but that he, Jesus, had come that we might have life and that we might have it to the full, that we could have life in abundance. And he's given us that life, and he set us free from sin and, and bondage, and we walk in that freedom now. Uh, but as someone once said, you ain't seen nothing yet, all right? Truly abundant life awaits us in heaven where there's no distance, where there's nothing to affect us. I, I tell families sometimes right now there's, we're separated by a sea from our loved ones, but sometimes even before death, we're separated by other things, just by life or events or the past or hard feelings or misunderstandings or whatever. But in heaven, there's nothing that separates us, nothing broken there. It all fits. It's all brought together. We're nourished and fed and we're given life. Life the way it was meant to be. It's a life we can't even imagine. And so much of life on this earth is dehumanizing, but in heaven, we're going to be the people he created us to be, living in his image, growing and thriving as his new creation in a new heaven. No death, no atrophy, no, no less. It's life in his presence. And then there's one more feature that I want you to see, and that's the 12 gates and the 12 foundation stones. 
And in his vision, John sees that the 12 gates had names written on them, and they were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes were named after 12 of the sons of Jacob or, or Israel. Jacob, remember, wrestled with God and had his name changed from Jacob to Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel are the sons, technically the sons. There's Manasseh, Ephraim, anyway. Yeah, go to Sunday school and you'll hear all about it. And then the names of the 12 apostles are written on the 12 foundation stones of the walls. And we don't have time to explain all that or explore it all today. But if you take time to read about those 12 sons of Jacob or Israel, they weren't exactly saints. They were, they were far from it. And uh, Peterson said it this way, uh, the father of the 12, Jacob or Israel, has little com to commend him and his seed did not approve, improve in his sons. I thought that was pretty good because Jacob was a, a deceiver and a supplanter and a schemer and all those things. And so his seed didn't improve in his sons. So in those sons, we've got stories of brutality and fraud and violated and violent sex and cowardice. But in and through those life stories, God persistently brought about the salvation of wretches that didn't deserve to be saved and revealed his glory. Twelve tribes of broken, messed up people, but their names are on the gates in the heaven. And then we've got the 12 foundation stones with the names of the apostles. And what we know of some of the 12 apostles doesn't necessarily fill us with pride in our spiritual ancestors either. They were constantly arguing and bickering who's the greatest in the kingdom and trying to one-up each other to see who could get closer to Jesus. Well, a couple of brothers, you know, sent their mom to talk to Jesus, like trying to, mom, go talk to him. Go now, talk to him. See if you can get us better deals. And, you know, when he comes in his kingdom, get us better positions or whatever. I don't want to be the ambassador to anywhere. I want to be secretary of state. Anyway, so <laughs> they struggled with their faith. They had doubts about things. Who is this guy? They all ran in fear in Gethsemane when the soldiers came to get Jesus. They, they panicked and ran. We're familiar with, with three of them, Peter, James, and John. We hear their names often mentioned, and we hear stories about them in the New Testament. Andrew and Philip, Thomas and Matthew are mentioned a couple of times. They get a, a little shout out here and there, but, but we don't know much about them. And the rest of the 12, James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Simon, Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot. And, you know, sometimes they substitute those names in with, with James or Judas, and, and then he's constantly the one having to go, not that Judas. I'm the other Judas. I'm the good Judas. And so, anyway, but we don't know anything about those other, those other people. They, they just kind of lived in obscurity. And here's the deal that we need to see. The foundation of heaven is built on folks like the apostles, messed up and doubting and frightened and obscure and unknown, but they heard a call and they came to Jesus and they found salvation and they found life in his name. And the entrance to heaven is through gates named after these flawed, weak, messed up individuals like the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel who didn't get it right much of the time, but they trusted in God's covenant and in his promises and they found that it was good news for them and for all of us. For with those 24 foundational people and their stories before us, Eugene Peterson 
writes, there is nothing so evil in my unfaithfulness and nothing so obscure about my life that is not even now being fashioned into the foundation stones and entrance gates of heaven. And when St. John saw the names of the 12 tribes inscribed in the gates of pearl and the 12 apostles inscribed on the foundation stones, he knew and makes us know that everything in history is retrievable. The grace of Jesus is the foundation upon which heaven is built. The gates of heaven open by his grace. Heaven's not closed to you because of your mistakes. It's not closed to you because of your past. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then by grace, it's not by our righteousness or by our good works, but by his grace and his merit alone that our name is written in his book and that we have access to heaven. And so when we approach heaven and we see the names on the gates and on the foundation stones, we can say, you know what? I I know that that guy didn't get in by his good works because I know he was a mess. If he got in, there's still hope for me. It's by grace that we're getting in. It's by grace we're being welcomed in, not by my works, but because I've trusted in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, you don't want to miss heaven and you don't have to. By his grace, you can be saved today. Repent and turn to Jesus. Make him Savior and Lord of your life. And then the heaven I've been preaching about this morning, that's going to be your eternal destiny. Perfect wholeness and holiness and made complete in him. A land where it's light and filled with light and no darkness and no despair and no death. It's life in abundance, flourishing and growing. And all of it provided by his saving grace. This is heaven and this is what's ahead for all who trust in Jesus. And in the meantime, between now and then, we're called to live as citizens of heaven. We're called to live in the light of heaven. And so we're going to make choices to say, oh, I see. Yeah, then my, my life is supposed to be life-producing and life-giving to others. And my life is supposed to be light that shines out in the darkness of the world around me. I get that. And there ought to be wholeness and holiness in my life that's being produced that, that is shown to others by the choices I make and the way I live my life. That's what he calls us to, that on the journey, we're reflecting heaven, but Oh, what he's prepared for all of us. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. We're going to pray, and then uh, we've got uh, a good word from, from our guests today. But if you're here this morning, if you're watching online, and Jesus is not the Savior and Lord of your life, or maybe you prayed a sinner's prayer at one point in time, you asked Jesus in your heart, but, but you know the last few months or years or whatever, you've not really been living for him. You haven't been serving him the way you know you should be. And there's there's this feeling kind of gnawing at you, that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that's saying, you know what, there's, there's more for you and there's a better way for you to live. You know that's not pleasing to the Lord. You know you need to turn away from that. And this morning, as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, there's an opportunity for you to make this, make this choice, make this decision to simply say, Lord, I need you to forgive my sins. I need you to come into my heart and, and be my Savior and be my Lord. I don't want to live in sin. I don't want to miss heaven. And more than that, Lord, as much as that, Lord, I don't want to, I don't want to miss life with you now. I want to live for you, and I want, I want to serve you. I want other people to see the light of heaven in my face and in my life, my words, my actions. So, Lord, help me to be that follower of Jesus that you want me to be. So, 
Lord, I pray right now for anyone watching or here in the house, they need to ask Jesus for forgiveness. Just tell him right now, Lord Jesus, forgive me my sins. Forgive me, Lord, for going my own way instead of living for you and pleasing you. Forgive me, Lord, for turning away when you called to me, for ignoring you, Lord. I repent and I ask for forgiveness. And I ask you to fill my heart with light and with life today. Let me serve you. Lord, let my life reflect the image of God. Let my choices, Lord, about everything, let my choices about everything reflect you and who you are in my life. Jesus, I want heaven to be my home someday. So prepare me now by your forgiving grace and your mercy. Lord, for those that are struggling right now, would you, just, would you just encourage them, let them know there's victory in Jesus today. There's a way forward and a way through this. Lord, there's a way for us to walk in victory and in obedience. And so, Lord, grant it to our hearts today. I thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for the promise that you're going to go and prepare a place for us, and then you'll come and receive us, and we'll be with you forever. Lord, let us keep our eyes fixed on you and on thy heavenly home. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. Well, for you online, thank you for being on there. Everybody else stay right here. But for you online, God bless you. Thanks for watching. I bless you in the name of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And thanks for joining us online. And for the rest of you this morning, I want to introduce our guests. So if you two will